May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Nicole Cliff wrote an article recently for Christianity Today, and it's entitled, How God Messed Up My Happy Atheist Life. Um, I thought it was a clever title. She says that while it might seem depressing to some, the idea of life simply ending at death was for her mildly reassuring, she says, in its finality. She goes on to say, I did not convert to Christianity because I feared judgment or because I had any untapped uh, yearnings. She said, I was happy. And I thought that people of faith were sweet, but at least somewhat delusional. She goes on to say, but what happened to me was I began to worry about my child. And she says, I walked into an empty room and I said, be with me. And she said, I didn't know to whom I was speaking. And I felt embarrassed because I said this, because I had this need. She goes on to say that um, she was reading uh, uh, online about this article uh, written, this obituary for Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard, if you don't know him, is a famous evangelical spiritual theologian. And she saw that the obituary was written by the father of a close friend of hers. And so she read the obituary simply out of interest because the man who had written the obituary. It got her so interested in Dallas Willard that she went and she checked a book out or bought one online, I don't know what she said, and, and she read a book by Dallas Willard. And then she goes on to talk about her conversion. She ends the article this way. She says, there are times when I feel a bit like a medieval peasant. And that I believe entirely in God now, but don't always do what he wants. Or like Scarlett O'Hara, put hard conversations with him off until I've done the thing that I wanted to do. It's a thumbing backdrop to the rest of my life. My Christian conversion has granted me no simplicity. It has complicated all of my relationships, changed how I feel about money, messed up my pub public persona, and made me wonder if I should be on Twitter at all. If you've ever been on Twitter, you're going to that's what. She ends with this sentence. Obviously, it's been very beautiful. I like that. It's messed everything up. It's complicated everything. All of my relationships, how I feel about money, all these sorts of things. It complicates everything. It's not an easy fix. Christianity is not an easy fix. But it is a beautiful one. I think one of the biggest changes that people have in life when they come to a life of faith is the whole issue of prayer, of being able to know to whom we speak when we walk into an empty room and say, be with me. To know that that's not just an empty word, but a, a, a word's voice to the Almighty God, be with me. I think prayer helps us to have a sense of, of trusting in God's will, that we, we commit a, a decision to prayer. And know then that it's not just a matter that we are left off on our own, but that God will work his will in our lives. We don't really have to worry about making the wrong decision. People often come to me as a priest and say, you know, I've been praying about this thing and praying about this thing and I don't know what to do. And I say, well, that's good. You've prayed about it. You, you've committed it to God. Now, what do you want to do? And they'll say, I think I should do this. And I said, then I think you should do that. And it'll be the right decision. God is at work. Our, our lives are committed to him. I think prayer also comes to us a, a, as a comfort in the knowledge that, that God acts on behalf of others, that we can intercede, we can stand in the gap, as it were, for other people. 
And so when someone comes to me or to you and says, will you pray for me? What do you say? You say, yes, of course I will. Of course I'll pray for you. Usually when we seek prayer, when we're the person asking, will you pray for me? It usually comes out of something like fear. We have a surgery coming up. Um, There's an exam. Um, maybe there's a, a, an illness, maybe a loved one is facing some uncertain future, and so we go to somebody out of fear, and will you pray for me or, or pray for us on this behalf, pray for so-and-so. And even then, it's a really a gift, isn't it? A sense that, that we can commit the uncertainties of our future to God. A lot of people have grown up throughout the history of Christendom with the belief that God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead, as Jesus said about Abraham. 2,000 years after the death of Abraham, Jesus speaks of Abraham as being alive. And he says to his adversaries that God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And so a lot of Christians have come up with a thought of the communion of saints, that the saints are alive and in the presence of God, and, and that they too can intercede for us. It was a hotly contested topic about 500 years ago, and maybe you haven't quite worked it out, but a lot of Christians have believed that for a long time. St. Paul says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. One of the works of the Holy Spirit is he's interceding for us um, with groans that cannot be uttered, he says in chapter 8 of Romans. But in the 17th chapter of St. John's Gospel, the Gospel written today, read today, in the 17th chapter of St. John's Gospel, we have Jesus praying for us. The 17th chapter of John is Jesus' prayer, I believe, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that John is recording, this is what Jesus, at least in part, has prayed for us. I encourage you to grab a bulletin and open to the Gospel lesson. Jesus is praying for his disciples, those closest friends, but not just for those he actually says explicitly, and for those who will come after them. He is praying for you and for me in this chapter. In this little center section, verses 6 through 19, there is some level of specificity about the prayer that he's praying for us. I think that he is praying for us for three things, and we're going to look at these three things. The first one is joy. If you look in, that, uh, in your lesson there in the bulletin, verse 13, it's uh, about, I guess, the middle part of that. If you can find that, verse 13. Jesus says to the Father, he's speaking to God the Father, but now I am coming to you. And I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. He prays for us to have joy. Joy is not a matter of constant happiness. <laughs> it's not. It's, it, joy does not indicate um, like unchanging circumstances of perfection. It's not one string of pleasurable moments after another unimpeded by anything else. That is not what joy is. Joy is the moment when you experience a job well done. Um, Joy is what a mother feels when she gives birth to a child. It might have been extremely painful, and indeed in almost every case it was. But at the end of that pain comes this sense of joy, this sense of delight of having brought a child into the world, one to be loved and cherished and known. It's what an artist feels when she or he completes their work. Imagine an artist having worked for a long period of time and they get done and their hands, their fingers are sore. They can be dirty and 
and hungry and tired. Maybe their, their back hurts from standing in the same position for a long period of time. But then they take a step back with all of this pain and all this, this struggle. And they look at this work and there's a sense of euphoria. That's what I had in my mind's eye when I was, when I was thinking about it. And here it is. This, this, and it comes with a sense of joy. This delight. Jesus wants us to have joy like that. Listen to what Leon Morris, a a theologian, says. He says, it is an inspiring thought that Jesus calls his followers into joy. The Christian life is not some shallow, insipid following of a traditional pattern. I like that. The Christian life is not some shallow, insipid following of a traditional pattern. It is a life characterized by unexhausted and inexhaustible power for fresh creation. Jesus prays for you and for me to have joy. That joy that just comes and continues to, to grow in our lives. And, and we continue to see the, the beauty and the wonder all around us that makes us, you know, inwardly have this sense of, of joy, of euphoria and delight. The second thing he prays for, look at the very next verse, verse 14. The Lord prays for our protection. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world. Just as I do not belong to the world, Jesus says, I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. Two enemies, two adversaries. The first one is the cosmos, the world. In John's um, Greek, it's cosmos. And this is kind of a slippery word because sometimes in the New Testament, the writers use cosmos in a very positive way. For God so loved the world, cosmos, right? That, that he gave his one and only son. The, the, the world is loved. It is God's creation. It's his, his, um, his creative handiwork. It includes all the people and all the things. And it is that which God um, seeks to save and redeem. Cosmos can be positive. But it is also.